My text for today begins in verse 57. Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. That's as far as I intend to go this morning. When I announced, uh, when I gave my text to Elizabeth on Thursday, I thought that I would preach through the end of the chapter. But there's an idea in these verses that I think it's important for us to consider. And uh, the idea is this, standing firm in the face of friendly temptation. Standing firm in the face of friendly temptation. Back in the 1970s, there was a song that uh, I'm sure this is one of many songs that started off something like this. Somebody's knocking. Would you look at him or would you let him in? I, I should have looked up the lyrics if I'm going to use it for the introduction. But the idea was, it's the devil. It's the devil at the door. But who would have thought that he would have had blue eyes and blue jeans? So uh, maybe you remember that song. I can think of at least one other song uh, that has that same idea. Uh, I thought that the devil would come all dressed up in a red suit, and, uh, but instead here he comes looking so pretty or looking so handsome. And uh, the fact of the matter is some of the devil's most effective temptations come to us not necessarily through bad people with bad intentions, but sometimes those temptations come to us from good people with good intentions. And I believe that we have an instance of that here in this passage of Scripture. The Lord had told Zechariah exactly what he was supposed to name his son. told him he was supposed to name John. And then here come the neighbors and relatives. And they are going to, uh, they're going to name him Zechariah. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah have to speak up. Now, you may think that this is an extraordinarily small uh, matter because we don't place as much importance on uh, the giving of names as they did in the Bible. Uh, but uh, and this is a big deal, and I, I'll try to point that out to you why I say this is such a big deal and why I think it's a big enough deal to make a point of it in the sermon. In fact, the main sermon, how do you stand against temptation, how do you recognize temptation, when it comes to you from a friendly, well-intentioned source. 
So first of all, let's look at these characteristics that are suggested in this passage of Scripture, characteristics of temptation when it arises from a friendly source. And then I want to show you several Bible examples. There will be some examples where people succumbed to bad advice that was given to them from a friendly source. And then we'll turn our attention to some Bible examples where people resisted bad advice that was given to them from a friendly source. And then thirdly, uh, we will look at some strategies for recognizing and overcoming these friendly temptations. And finally, from this passage of Scripture, we'll see some of the good results that flow from a successful resistance to temptation that proceeds from a friendly source. So primarily trying to limit myself to this passage of Scripture, let's think about some of the elements that uh, characterize temptation when it arises from a friendly source. And the first thing to notice is that uh, the temptation may come from people who are good people and who have good intentions. That certainly was the case with these people. So the Bible tells us that when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. So they're happy about this. And, uh, and then the, in that day, the Lord had prescribed, you wait eight days, and on the eighth day, that's when you uh, give the, the boy the sign of the covenant. And so he's to be circumcised on the eighth day, and that's also the day, apparently, when it was customary to give the child the name. And so they come, and they're, go- they're rejoicing. This is a good time. And uh, they are going to uh, rejoice with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they're going to assist in this ritual. So these people were not bad people. These people are good-hearted people, and yet they present a temptation. Let's name the boy Zechariah. Now, when they say that they're going to name the boy Zechariah, then Elizabeth speaks up, and she says, no, he is to be called John. And now arises a second characteristic of temptation that arises from friendly sources. The first one was that the people may genuinely have good hearts and be friendly. The second source is they may have a good tradition for suggesting what they suggest. And I'm using tradition in a big sense there. It may be that they're able to say, well, Everybody else does it this way, or this is, what, uh, this is what the culture is saying right now. What they said was, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And so obviously the, the tradition was, you have a son, especially if he's your firstborn son, you name him after the father, and that's what they wanted to do. And they meant well in doing that, and they, they said, we, that's, that's what people usually do. And uh, we don't want to be... We don't want to be weird just for the sake of being weird. We don't want to go against the culture just for the sake of being against the culture. But if you really are going to be a follower of Jesus, there will be many times when you will be forced to take a path that leads you to go against the grain or to swim upstream, to take a stand that makes you different than the culture. There is a poem that has meant much to me throughout my ministry. And uh, it's trust in God and do the right. And um, it goes like this. Courage, brother, do not stumble. Though thy path be dark as night, 
There's a star to guide the humble. Trust in God and do the right. So the, the poet introduces us to the idea, you may not know what to do, but is it clear what God has said you ought to do? Then trust in God and do that. And uh, not, not to quote the entire poem, but uh, part of it says, some will hate thee, some will love thee, some will flatter, some will slight, cease from man and look above thee, trust in God and do the right. Don't make it your rule of life that you're going to try to do what everybody else is trying to do. Again, don't be weird just for the sake of being weird. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then there are times when you will need to break with tradition. You will need to break with what everybody else is doing. And so uh, the, the world is, is pressing ideas upon the culture today. The devil is introducing ideas into the culture Oh, the, the loving thing to do is this. If you really love, then this is the way that you're going to behave. This will be your attitude. And Christ calls us to come out from the world and be separate and to be a different people. But often, friend, people who mean well will say, Oh, now, if you, if you go that far, then you're going to become a, a fanatic. If you go that far, then people are going to think that you're a Puritan. Uh, God forbid that you, you would be criticized for being too strong for Jesus. They, these friendly, well-intentioned people have, uh, sometimes they have tradition and sometimes they have culture on their side. Now, in order for Zachariah and Elizabeth to take a stand, they had to interrupt the party a little bit. I can imagine that uh, my imagination can go r- running wild sometimes, and, and, some, and I can just imagine that these neighbors and relatives had begun to sing a little song celebrating this new baby, Zachariah, who was going to be born. And uh, then Elizabeth just speaks up and says, no, no, his name is not Zachariah. His name is John. Music stops. Dancing stops. Well, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And so they decide that they are going to find out from Zachariah. So they they put a little pressure on. They're going to find out from Zechariah. Now, the Bible has already told us in Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah has been smitten mute so that he could not speak. When the angel appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah was burning incense, the angel told him, You're going, your, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife is well along in years. And the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence and I've been sent to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak until this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come to pass at their appropriate time. And so right then, that day, Zechariah could not speak. But I gather that he also at the same time was struck deaf. Because when they want to know, what do you want to name the boy? They didn't just ask him. They had to write it out. They made signs to his father. What do you want to name the boy? He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And so um, they, uh, these, these friendly tempters, they... They press it as far as they can. They, they mean well. They're not mean-spirited. They 
call in the, the witness of culture or tradition and say you ought to do this. If you are going to stand against them, then sometimes it means that the music shuts off and the party stops and you're a, you're a party pooper. But still, we are called upon to resist the temptation that comes from a friendly source. Now let's think of some other Bible examples of people, in some cases, first of all, who succumbed to bad advice, and then to some people who were able to resist the bad advice that came from well-intentioned friends and relatives. So there's a story in, uh, in the Old Testament about one of King David's sons named Amnon. And Amnon had conceived an impure desire for his half-sister Tamar. Now, back in those days, it was not unheard of that a man would be permitted to marry his half-sister. And so, there were honorable ways of Amnon uh, consummating this relationship. But the Bible says that Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. He had a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab said to Amnon, here's what you ought to do. You should pretend to be sick. And when, the de- and when your father, King David, asks what's wrong with you, just tell him that you think you would get better if Tamar were allowed to come into your room and prepare food in front of you. Now that seemed uh, harmless enough, didn't it? Seemed harmless enough. But that's one of the characteristics of the bad advice that comes from a friendly source. Sometimes it just seems like a small thing. Well, let's, let's, give, let's give him the middle name of John. You, uh, Zachariah John. That sounds good, doesn't it? But no, his name was to be called John. Sometimes these things that appear to be little things are, in fact, what leads into much worse things. In fact, it almost always starts that way. Uh, by, the, by the mercy and grace of God, I have always been faithful to my wife. And I have always wondered... How can an adulterous affair even get started? How does it even get started? But I know how it gets started. It starts with little things, with just little conversations, with just little looks, with just little touches on the hand, with just little lunch meetings. And it starts off with these little things. And most people would say, oh, you know, there's no harm in that. It's just... It's just this. I wonder how many bad things have been introduced with. It's just a little blank. It's just a little kiss. It's just a little impropriety. Nobody will know. And Amnon followed the advice of his friend, Jonadab, and committed an atrocious act of rape against his sister. And uh, it resulted in in tremendous problems in the household of David. But there's an instance of someone who's a friend. The Bible says that, that Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, and he gave this bad advice. Or then let's go a little further into the future. And after Solomon had died, then his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne. And the people came to Rehoboam, and they said, Now we've been faithful to serve your father Solomon. And, uh, but he's dead now. And the fact of the matter was, he required too much of us. If you will 
ease up a little bit on the taxes and ease up a little bit on the conscription. If you'll ease up a little bit, we will continue to serve you. And Rehoboam said, let me consult with my counselors. And he had two groups of counselors. One group of counselors consisted of some older men. And he consulted with them and they said, you know, Rehoboam, people are right. Your father was too harsh. He was too stringent. You need to ease up. People will serve you if you just ease up. But then he had a second group of counselors, and the Bible identifies them as young men who had grown up with him. They were his friends. And they said, oh, you need to crack down on these people. Yeah, you just need to get tough with them. You tell them, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's waist. You think you had it hard under my dad. You just wait until I come down on you. Now there, Rehoboam succumbed to some bad advice from a friendly source. These were young men that he had grown up with. They were his friends, but they gave him bad advice, and it ended up in the kingdom being split. And then I think of a a king of Israel later on. He's said to be the most wicked king that Israel had had up to that point. And he was married to a wicked woman whose name was Jezebel, but she was his wife. And there's a place in the Bible where it says that Ahab was such a wicked man because Jezebel stirred him up. That's the way it's said in the King James Version. In the ESV it says that she incited him. And so we have one instance of that when uh, King Ahab had wanted to uh, buy the field of Naboth the vineyard of Naboth. It was close by the royal palace. He wanted to buy the field of Naboth. And Naboth Naboth said, well, this is my family's plot and I can't sell it to you. Uh, I'm sure there are other plots of ground you could buy, but Ahab went home in a big pout. And he goes home and his wife Jezebel says, what's the matter with you? And he said, well, I wanted to buy the field of Naboth and he wouldn't let me. She said, aren't you the king? Aren't you the king? I'll take care of it. And she did take care of it. And he followed her advice. And he followed someone who ought to have been a support and an encouragement to him. But she led him into further evil. She stirred him up to evil. That's bad advice that came from a purportedly friendly source, a man's own wife. Now we've considered three examples of how people succumb to friendly advice That was bad advice. Now let's consider some examples to the contrary. How that people were presented with bad advice from a friendly source. But they saw through it. The person saw through it and resisted. And the first is King David. When King David had been anointed to be king over Israel. But Saul was on the throne. And Saul was still continuing to assert the rights of being the monarch. And Saul was jealous of David and was trying to kill David. And one day, David and his men were hiding in a cave, and, and Saul came in. And uh, maybe Saul came in to take a nap. Uh, anyway, he was sufficiently distracted so that David was able to get close enough to cut off part of his garment. His men were whispering in his ear, kill him, kill him. The Lord has delivered him into your hand, kill him. But David wouldn't do it. <clears throat> and uh, And this is a a testimony to David's great restraint, how he had control over his his temper. And he 
He did not succumb to the temptation that was given him by people who loved him and people who cared about him. Kill this man who is your enemy. Or think about some of the things that happened in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus at Caesarea Philippi asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Then well, they said, well, some say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets of long ago who has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And I'm telling you that now I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be uh, fall into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees and they're going to kill me and on the third day I'll rise again. Apparently the disciples only heard so far as they're going to kill me. And then Peter, who loved Jesus, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. You see, in Peter's mind, the Messiah, whom he had just confessed Jesus to be, and Jesus had confirmed that he, he was right, in Peter's mind, the, the Messiah was someone who could not die, someone who was going to be a great political ruler. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, then Peter thought, oh, Jesus is misinformed on this. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, no, he probably got about as far as, let me explain to you what the job of the Messiah is. But Jesus cut him off and said, get behind me, Satan. Recently, you were talking about someone who has been instructed by God, but now you're talking like Satan. Now you are tempting me with, with something that is, to avoid something that is difficult. Get behind me. I'm telling you that if anyone wants to come after me, He must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow after me. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is not the only one who must deny himself. You also must deny yourself. Is there any self-denial in your religion? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow after me. Is there any cross-bearing in your religion? Because those who follow after Jesus must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after him. They're the same kind of satanic whispers that whisper in your ear to say, you can be a Christian and you can be a good person, but just don't go too crazy with it. Just don't get fanatic about it. Cross-bearing. That means sacrifice. That means dying. Deny yourself. I mean, who today denies themselves? You have, you have rights. You have privileges. Be a Christian as far as it will make you happy, be a Christian as far as it will enrich your life and your pleasures, but don't go any farther than that. But that's that's a whisper that comes from Satan. It may come from the lips of a well-intentioned friend like Peter, but it is a satanic suggestion. Or then think of when Jesus and his disciples were so busy that his mother and brothers came to take possession of him. And they said, He's out of his mind. The, way, the things that he's saying, the things that he's doing, as busy as he is, we need to take him home and give him a little respite. They meant well. Someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside wanting to see you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at his disciples, he said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and who obey it. This is, this is my, my family. People who hear the word of God and who obey it. But his mother and his brothers, they weren't being mean-spirited. They thought, he's gone crazy. We need to 
we need to take care of this. We need to, we need to help him out. But that Jesus, of course, successfully resisted this temptation that came from the lips of well-intentioned sources. And there are other examples, but let's move on and see what are some of the strategies for successfully resisting temptation of any kind, but especially temptation that comes from friendly sources. And looking back at our text, the first thing that I want to point out to you is that you will do well to do what Zechariah had done, and that's to recruit a friend. And praise be to God if it's your spouse. But Zechariah had come and had written out or communicated in some way what had happened and that the boy was to be called John. And so when it was necessary for him to stand against this friendly temptation, he had a wife who was standing beside him and supporting him and encouraging him. And what a happy thing it is when a husband and a wife can stand together and can stand for what is right. Um, and there will be many occasions when you will, be, you will be extremely glad that you have got someone, a spouse, ideally, who is able to stand with you. If you're not married, then may the Lord guide you to someone else. It may be a, another brother if you're a man. It may be another sister if you're a, if you're a female. And, uh, but someone who can stand with you, someone who can support you and encourage you. Uh, one of the keys of being successful in working out or being successful in dieting is to get someone who helps to hold you accountable. That's also a successful strategy when you're, when you're pursuing after holiness. Is there a sin that continues to, to hound you and you, you fall and you, you think, well, I'm, I'm going to conquer this on my own, but months have gone on and maybe years have gone on and that sin continues to plague you? Recruit the help of some Christian friend and say, I'm struggling with this. Could you help to keep me accountable? Could you help to bring the truth of God to me? And then In addition to that, I'll just have the shame of having to confess to you that I have fallen into this sin again, but uh, recruit someone to be a helper with you. Now, of course, it almost goes without saying that uh, the reason Zachariah and Elizabeth were able to win this battle is because they had frankly and heartily embraced the Word of God. And that's what we must do too, even before we recruit a helper. We've got to embrace the Word of God. God has said that this is true. At first, Zechariah was doubtful, but then he wholeheartedly embraced the truth. And he said, we're, we're going to have a son, and we're going to name him John. So, and then when the time came, so the two things that I've mentioned so far, recruit a helper, heartily embrace the Word of God. And then the third thing that we see from this text is put it in words. When it comes time to say it, then say it plainly, say it boldly. His name is John. Not, well, you know, John's a pretty good name. Or maybe we should consider naming him John. No, Zachariah took a stand and he said, his name is John. We're not even going to consider the possibility of naming him anything other than John. Now, I think that this was a big deal. We tend to see it as just a small deal, but now let me get into my fourth point, and that's the results of their standing firm in the face of friendly temptation. And one of the results is they passed the test. They passed the test. 
Now, you know, the angel had said to Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until my words are fulfilled. Well, his words were, the angel's words were fulfilled eight days earlier. John believed it. John believed that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a baby. There was the baby. And I wonder what was going through Zachariah's mind. Baby's born. I sure do believe it. How come I can't talk? Day two. His baby's crying. He's here. I believe it. Still can't talk. Goes until the eighth day. On the eighth day, here comes the party. He still can't talk. What do you want to name the boy Zachariah? He writes, his name is John. And that showed that he had passed the test. He not just believed it, but he was going to embrace it. He was going to live it. He's going to name this boy John. And he does. He's already been named His name is John. And then the Lord says, all right, you've passed the test. Sometimes it's very small things that the Lord uses to to test. Are you faithful to me or are you not? I'm convinced that everything that we face in life is a test. Everything. How are you going to react? Are you going to react like a son of God, a daughter of God who believes the word of God, who's going to stand for the word of God? Or are you going to be flimsy and pliable and say, well, I don't know, but let's think about it and maybe later on and then later on never happens and you just end up being wishy-washy your whole life. Now, where are you today? Are Are you just playing around in the puddles of God's word or are you saying, I believe it, I'm going to stand for it regardless of the cost I'm going to stand with what the Lord says. His name is John. Is there, is there something that you need to take care of today like that? Something that's just been pestering you? Some sin that you know is a sin, but you keep making excuses for it? Go ahead and call it what God calls it. Its name is sin. Maybe there's some <clears throat> character flaw that you, that you indulge. Maybe it's you, you get angry too much. Maybe it's you know that you talk too much. Maybe it's that you watch too much TV. Maybe it's that you keep slipping into looking at pornography or visiting websites. Maybe there's, maybe the Lord has convicted you about the movies that you watch or the music that you listen to, and you just keep playing around with it. Maybe the Lord has convicted you about the way that you dress or the way that you don't dress. Maybe the Lord has convicted you about being too silent at school or too silent at work and just keeping your head down all the time so that you never get hit. Why don't you just be bold and say, his name is John. Call it what it is. Call it what the Lord says it is and side with the Lord. They passed the test. And then my text concludes with something that I think is just marvelous, has really stoked my imagination. I'm thinking about preaching an entire sermon on it. It's the last thing in my text for the people heard all these things, and they said, what then will this child be? Here it is. For the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord was with him. Wow. I've been thinking through this and thinking, what does the Bible say about the hand of the Lord? What does the hand of the Lord do? 
What does it mean when it says that the hand of the Lord was with him? But the point I want to make this morning is the hand of the Lord was with him because he grew up in a house where the mom and the dad embraced the word of God and stood for the word of God. Now, that's no guarantee that your children are going to grow up to be Christians. But if I can put it in such a way, it certainly seems to increase the probability we know that when there are, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as probability. But it seems to me that the Lord's usual way of convincing people of the truth is that he puts them in a family that believes the truth. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, there are some of you who are wonderful, gracious exceptions to that. And you got saved out of a mess. And nobody in your family is a Christian but you. Praise God for his mercies in doing that. But many of us in this room today can say, I had a godly mom and a dad. I had a mom and a dad who they may not have always done any, everything right. They may have made mistakes, but I know this. They were utterly 100% perfectly dedicated to serving the Lord. And that has been an enormous blessing to me, I can say. And many of you can say the same thing. <clears throat> and so... Do you want the hand of the Lord to be upon your son? Do you want the hand of the Lord to be upon your daughter? It's no guarantee. But if you stand firmly against temptation, if you stand firmly for the word of God and what he commands, then it may be that the Lord will also put his hand upon your family. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please. <clears throat>